0: Well, hey, good morning. It's great to see all of you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. Uh, you know, there's something, I've been married almost 20 years. There's something I've started to do in the last uh, year or so, kind of more than I ever have before, uh, which is buy my wife flowers. I've been buying my wife flowers, aren't I? No, I thought I was going to get like a, wow, you're amazing. Um, no, that's fine. Um, It's really fun to do, especially with with my little guy, Hank, when he's with me, I go, hey, I'm going to buy flowers for my girlfriend, and he gets all red. But I've been buying flowers more often for Molly, and uh, it's funny because I'll bring them home, and she just, she lights up, and she loves them, and and I, for years, never really did it very often, and I think it's partly because neither of us are kind of uh, love language gifts people. Um, you know, we like gifts, but that's not kind of the way we sort of communicate mostly. Um, you know, I think for me, for flowers, it's kind of like, you know, you spend all this money and then they die fast and it's like, okay, well, well I've just realized like she, she likes it. And actually, as I've kind of thought back, i have going like, you know what, ever since we've been married, every time I've brought her flowers, she's like, I really love when you bring me flowers. And uh, it makes her think of when her dad brought her mom flowers and, and so it's like this really kind of meaningful thing to her that it took me a long, long time to realize like, wow, this is actually a simple way that, to, to make her feel loved. And it's like that had been there all along and somehow I just didn't notice. You ever have something like that where there's something in someone you love that's been there all along and you didn't notice? Some of you are uh, elbowing your spouse right now going, yeah, that's what I've been talking about, right? Well, here's what I've been wondering. What if there's something about God's heart that he's cared about for a long, long time and we've not noticed? What if there's something that really lights God's eyes up? What if there's something that really connects in the Lord's emotions for what, what he cares about And as we've thought about how to worship him and how to love him and how to enjoy him and how to follow him, what if we've missed it? What if we've forgotten? What if we maybe just haven't noticed? And that's what we're talking about today is we're talking about God's heart for the vulnerable. The big idea today is this. God's people are called to love the last, the least, and the lost like God does. God's people are called to love the last, the least, and the lost like God. God does. We're in this series right now called "Countercultural Convictions." We've been looking at these different convictions that we have as Redemption Church, uh, Redemption Gateway. Here is one of ten congregations, part of the Redemption Church family. We're looking at some areas where our uh, Christian convictions kind of run against the grain of culture. So the first week we talked about kind of how our approach. To these, uh, to these issues even might run against the grain of culture. Uh, last week, uh, we talked about sexuality. The week before, we talked about gender. And today, we're talking about this conviction we have for the vulnerable, for the poor, for the overlooked, for the least, the last, and the lost. Now, if you're, if you're thinking about it, you're going, okay, wait a minute. I get how what we said about gender was countercultural. I get how what we said about sexuality is countercultural. How is a conviction... That God's people are called to love the last, and the least, and the lost. How is that countercultural, right? Like, where's the group of people that are like vulnerable people, <laughs> poor, eh, overlooked? Man, nah, we don't care about them. Like, like I don't know that there's like who hates the vulnerable, right? We've just spent you know the last two years as we've gone through COVID, with everyone being very worried about and concerned, appropriately so, about the vulnerable. So, so how does this run against? The culture, and, and so that's what we're going to explore a little bit today. So here's how I want to do this. I want to talk uh, about kind of what, what is the biblical understanding of this. And I think what you're going to see is that in God's heart, this concern is everywhere. So what does the Bible teach? We're talking about how it's countercultural, and then we're going to kind of ask the question, what might God be inviting us into as the people of Redemption Gateway in light of this, this heart that God has? So would you pray with me? Father, thank you uh, for your heart. God, thank you for your heart for the vulnerable. Because we come to you sinful, weak, poor, and you look upon us and you welcome us and you care for us. So God, help us to have your heart, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first we're gonna ask this question, what does the Bible teach? Uh, a few years ago, uh, we were going on a camping trip and we were taking one of my kids' friends and, and she, we said, hey, uh, as we kind of go shopping for this camping trip, is there anything we need to keep in mind in terms of your diet? She said, yeah, well, I'm, I'm dairy-free and I'm gluten-free. Right? Some of you are in that spot and i would never shopped for someone in that spot and so I'm like, okay, I'll go to Trader Joe's. We well, even Trader Joe's, here's what, you, here's what you realize, there is dairy and gluten in everything. Like even like Trader Joe's doesn't have much stuff that's dairy-free or gluten-free. I'm like, this is going to be really, like your life is terrible. I'm so sorry, right? Uh, and, and some of you are in that spot and you know, like, yeah, like if you find a restaurant like that's gluten-free, dairy-free, you're like, you take all your friends there because it's like, yes, this is, this is one of those few places because it's just everywhere. And here's the thing. When we think about what does the Bible teach about God's heart for the vulnerable, what you realize is it's in everything. You can't get away from it, even though maybe we don't always notice it. So what I wanna do for the next uh, good chunk of time here is do a good old-fashioned, what we call around here at Redemption Gateway, a good old-fashioned Bible bath. Uh, Every now and then, you know, we just need a Bible bath where we need to kind of go, what does the Bible say? And in this series where we're not preaching through just one book of the Bible verse by verse, as we often do, I I wanna kind of, in a sense, try to overwhelm us with the sense of, of God's heart for the vulnerable. What does God say? as it relates to the vulnerable. Are you ready for a Bible bath? We'll put the words on the screen, but uh, you know, if you're like, oh, I think the Bible's boring, we'll see in about 20 minutes when I'm done with this part. All right, so here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible uh, first teaches that every person is made in the image of God. Every person is made in God's image. It says in Genesis one, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is so significant. Each person is made in the image of God, to reflect God, to be a mirror to the world of who God is. So that's the first thing. That's what the Bible teaches, is is if God loves everyone, if everyone is made in His image, then each person has inherent dignity and value and worth. We believe the Bible teaches that God, get this, unashamedly identifies with the poor and the overlooked. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. So, so now God's describing himself. Here's how, here's how God's described. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Hi, I'm God. Executor of justice for the fatherless. Concern for the poor. That's how God introduces himself. This is remarkable. Proverbs 14, 31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So think about this. This is saying that if we mistreat someone else, especially in this verse's particular context, if if we mistreat the poor, if we insult the poor, we're actually insulting God. Think about that. God, who in Deuteronomy 10 said he was great and mighty and awesome. like That's how we'd expect God to describe himself, of course, right, this big, awesome, ever almighty to save. And then how does God introduce himself? What's on his card? Hi, I'm God, father to the fatherless. Hi, I'm God, protector of the widow. Hi, I'm God, identifying with the poor. Right in the same way that someone would say, well, what do you do? And I'd say, well, I'm a pastor. God would say, well, well, God, what do you do? I take care of the fatherless and the orphan, the widow. In the law, so next was the Bible teach. In the law, that's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. In the law, God calls his people to pay attention to caring for the, for the vulnerable. There's a few different laws that, that make special attention that, God would, that God's calling his people to pay attention to what the needs of vulnerable and poor people are. So uh, here's one example in Deuteronomy 24. It says this, "'When you reap your harvest in your field "'and forget a sheaf in the field, "'you shall not go back to get it. "'It shall be for the sojourner, "'the fatherless and the widow, "'that the Lord your God may bless you "'in all the work of your hands.'" When you beat your olive trees you shall not go over them again it shall be for the sojourner the fatherless and the widow when you gather the grapes of your vineyard you shall not strip it afterward it shall be for the sojourner the fatherless and the widow you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt therefore i command you to do this think about this for a moment what What God's saying is, hey, you're gonna harvest your crops and inevitably along the way, some of it's gonna get left behind. And rather than going back through it again and making sure that you can extract every little bit of profit out of this farm, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave it because there's gonna be sojourners, there's gonna be fatherless, there's gonna be widow, there's gonna be poor people who uh, have have been kind of abandoned by the structures of, of family and society that would help take care of them, and I'm gonna provide a structure through your concern for the poor. Another place in Leviticus, it talks about when you harvest your field, don't harvest it all the way to the edge, but leave some around the edge. And then think about the logic of this. This is interesting. Verse 22, do you see it? You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Why should we have concern for the people who don't have anything? Because that's what we were. That's what God's saying. God's saying to his people, Israel, he's saying, you were, you were, you were at the bottom of the, of the rungs of society in Egypt. You were a slave. You were not provided for. You were not thought about. I thought about you, and now I want you to think about people who are in that same kind of situation. Some of you did this last year, and some of you might need to do this again this year, right? What what did you do last year, right, when you lined up at four o'clock in the morning at Costco and at Safeway for toilet paper, (laughs) right? We got to have some toilet paper, right? And you're like going in every cabinet, how many is in here, how many is in here? oh my gosh, honey, we need toilet paper, right? And here, and here was the thing, is we did M25 collections all last year uh, where we asked you, hey, would you bring different things? And one of the things that amazed me about our church is how many of you brought toilet paper, <laughs> right? We actually had some of our staff that was like, what's the room where they're storing all that toilet paper? Like, could I, uh... no, you may not steal the toilet paper that the people in our church donated Right, like that's, right. But but this was your heart. You're going like you could use every last square. I mean, you could use every last ply of toilet paper, and what you did was say, you know, I'm not going to do that because there's other people who need it, and they can't get up at 4 a.m. and wait in line, and they and so I'm going to do that. That's God's heart. Well, what about the prophets? Well, in the prophets, God calls His people to pursue righteousness and justice toward the vulnerable. Now, it's interesting because in English, the the words righteous and justice, righteousness and justice seem real different. In Hebrew, there's a lot of overlap between these ideas of righteousness and justice. Should you pursue righteousness? Yes. Should you pursue justice? Yes. What's the difference? Well, here's some slight differences. And so I want to give you a couple of words uh, from Hebrew. The first one is stakah, stakha, it means, to, it means being righteous and being just, and it especially is referring to relationships, that you're right with God, and therefore, if you're right with God, you're committed to putting all other relationships in life right as well. It means treating others as the image of God, Stakah, righteousness is how it's often translated, though sometimes it's translated as justice, and we're supposed to be a people of stakah of righteousness, of right relationships, of being just with one another. Uh, some people would call this primary justice. Now, there's another word in the Hebrew, mishpat, mishpat. By the way, I don't know Hebrew. I gotta look this stuff up and like, I have a software that tells me how to pronunciate it, right? So, just so you know, I'm not that much, I'm not really any smarter than you, I just have better software, so. Uh, but, but mishpat, means justice. And this is the idea of giving people what they're due, whether punishment or protection or care. And and when you look, especially at the prophets and especially the Old Testament, uh, occasionally this word is used to describe kind of uh, uh, like, like punishment, retribution. That kind of justice. But most often, it is talking about restorative justice. Giving somebody the protection that they didn't get that they were deserved. Giving someone the care that they deserved uh, as image bearers of God. And this you could call rectifying justice. So how do these two things relate? We'll we'll get this. Primary justice, stakah, is behavior that if it was prevalent in the world would render rectifying justice, mishpat, unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationship to everyone else do you get this if we did the first thing if we did primary justice there would be no need for rectifying justice if we were living treating one another with righteousness with justice as image bearers of God then there would be no need either to punish or to rectify what didn't happen does that make sense and so over and over, what you see in the prophets is, is, is these words paired together. Here's an example. In Jeremiah 22, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice, mishpat. And righteousness, stakah, and deliver them from the hand of the oppressor, him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So, so get this. When the prophet is speaking to the king, and in Israel, the, there was no separation of church and state. That's different than America, right? We are not. Uh, You can argue the history of our country as a Christian nation, but by statute, we're not a, there's no official state religion, right? That's different in these days. And so the prophets coming to the king, who not only is one of the key religious figures, but also to be, or I'm sorry, not just a political leader, also to be a religious leader, and saying, hey, we need to practice righteousness and justice. The prophets, God calls his people to pursue righteousness and justice toward the vulnerable. Well, who are the vulnerable? Well, uh, theologians have described the New Testament teaching as the quartet of the vulnerable. This comes from Zechariah chapter 7. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. The quartet of the vulnerable. In this verse, they're all together. But when you add up just all the New Testament or all the Old Testament, you just see this over and over: the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Think about this for a moment. Isn't it interesting that in our kind of context here in the southeast valley, we tend—I just want to get you to think about this—we tend to have a lot of compassion for the first two. The fatherless, the widow. And we tend to have less compassion for the second two. The sojourner, that's an immigrant. The poor. Why is that? I'm not, sh- I'm not sure. My, my, my hypothesis would be we tend to see the widow and the fatherless as more of a victim. And we tend to see the sojourner and the poor as more of a perpetrator. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But God says, I have a heart for all four. Now, in today's terms, you could, I think, also expand it, right? I think, I think the, if you think about, well, who's vulnerable and who does God have a heart for, you'd have to today include the unborn. God absolutely has a heart for the unborn, the most vulnerable, the most unable to do anything about their situation, the most in need of mishpat. The unborn would for sure be in this case. Uh, Refugees would be in this kind of case. People fleeing religious and political violence and ending up here in our country. Single parents, I think you would say, are often in a place of extreme vulnerability. The elderly... Right, So this isn't, get this, this isn't to say that these four are the only four God cares about. God has a heart for all of the vulnerable, and he calls us as his people to pursue righteousness and justice on their behalf. Okay, that's the prophets. Here we go. Hey, Bible bath, let's go. You're with me. The the wisdom literature, what about that? Okay, in the wisdom literature, God gives insight regarding the complicated nature of wealth and poverty, it's interesting because I think a lot of the, um, one of the, okay, maybe, there's a lot of emphasis in our cultural discussion about racial inequities and about racism. There's very little talk about our disdain for the poor. And yet, if you think about it, if you, if you talk to, a white poor person and a black poor person, they'll often say, Hey, I get treated the same way. Because we tend to kind of heap a lot of judgment on the poor. We kind of think, well, rich good, poor bad. But here's the reality: the wisdom literature, God says, Hey, it's more complicated than that. It's not just two kinds of people, the rich and the poor, it's actually four. In the prophet, I'm sorry, in the Proverbs, what you find is that there are unrighteous poor and righteous poor. There's unrighteous poor, where it says lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Some of you, you just think all poor people are in that category. If they would just work harder, if they would just stop being lazy, if they'd just be more diligent. But, but the Bible says, no, it's not quite that simple. There's, there's unrighteous poor where you're poor because you're lazy, because you're a sluggard. But there's also righteous poor, Proverbs 28.6, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. So the Bible says, hey, poor isn't the good or bad thing. What matters is your righteousness. Same thing about the rich. There's unrighteous rich, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. There's a kind of greed that overtakes a person, a kind of unrighteousness that makes it where you just sort of stomp over people in your path to accumulate wealth. That's not good. But then there's also the righteous rich. Proverbs 11.25, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Refreshed. So so get this. The the point is, the the, the wisdom literature is trying to say, hey, it's it's more complex than we think. And what matters is our righteousness, our stakah, our justice, our mishpat. That's what matters, not uh, the status of our income. Well, what about when we get to uh, the New Testament. Well, here's I'm just a paragraph I'm going to read from our membership packet that describes the New Testament teaching about this. Is that in his infinite wisdom, the Triune God decided that Jesus would take on flesh into a community that was a religious and ethnic minority, into citizenship in a low-influenced city, and conceived by unplanned pregnancy into a powerless, sojourning, low-income family. For this reason, among others, Jesus equates kindness to the poor. And overlooked with kindness to him. Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't come in a palace to a family of wealth and power. He came in a different situation. And so Jesus does equate kindness to the poor with kindness to him. Here's what it says in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is why we name our monthly collections M25. It comes from this. It says this, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. This is Jesus talking about the judgment at the last day. The king will answer them. truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you feed the hungry, when you visit the prisoner, when you care for the the sick, you do it for Jesus. Our membership packet also says this. In the Gospels, to be in proximity to Jesus was to be in proximity to the poor and powerless. In his public ministry, he heals the sick, cares for the poor, feeds the hungry, and ministers to the suffering. Jesus regularly shares meals and spends time with those considered outcasts. Get this, not exclusively, but very commonly. Rather than clamor for fame or influence with those in the seats of power, the Savior is content in the company of fishermen and tax collectors, servants and widows. Jesus does not overlook the people whom society overlooks. There are no God-forsaken people or places. If you even just sort of picture this, picture there's a crowd of people and there's Jesus in the center. In a sense, to get to Jesus, you had to go through the poor, the people that were most frustrated with Jesus were the people that were at the margins of Jesus, usually the wealthy and the well-connected, who didn't like that Jesus had such concern for the poor and the outcast. Finally, in the New Testament letters, care for the poor is also a high priority. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about going to the uh, brothers in Jerusalem and talking about his ministry and kind of saying, hey, what do you think of what I'm doing? And they totally affirmed him. It said this, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This makes me ask the question of myself and of us. Am I, are we eager to help the poor? Paul doesn't say, they asked me to remember the poor, the very thing I was willing to do. He says, I was eager to do this. And then we get to 1 John 3, 17. This was our scripture reading. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. So there it is, there's our Bible bath. That's what the Bible has to say about the vulnerable. You just, as you see, like it's the gluten, it's the dairy, it's all over the place, it's in everything. And so the question then becomes okay, well, then how is this actually countercultural? And here's something important that I want to say is that to whatever degree secular culture values care for the poor and the overlooked and the vulnerable, to whatever degree secular culture cares about that, it's because of Christianity. It's because secularism is still borrowing from all the ways that Christianity has influenced Western culture, right? Think about this. The the old, in the Old Testament, when when God is saying, hey, Israel, I want you to care for these people, that's countercultural because no one else thought like that. They thought, oh, the poor, they're unrighteous, they're lazy, get rid of them. In the Roman Empire, who were the people that were caring for the poor? It was the church. Who, who are the people who started hospitals? It was the church. Who are the people who started orphanages? Christians. So, so get this. Whatever exists in our society that is caring for the vulnerable and the poor, it exists in spite of secularism, not because of it. And so we should, we should in, a, in the right way, as, as followers of Jesus, we should be proud of that. And carry that mantle and say, we're not going to let people who don't believe in the image of God, people who believe that this is all about the strong, eat the weak, and the survival of the fittest, how does does Darwinism fit with care for the vulnerable? It doesn't. Let's just destroy them because they're messing up our gene pool. And so we as the followers of Jesus who believe in the dignity of each person because we're made in the image of God, we have to care about this. I think how is it counterculture? It also is how we view the vulnerable. We start with creation. This is a person made in the image of God instead of starting with the fall where this is a problem. Do you you love it? How many of you just love it when people treat you like you're a problem? (laughs) Right, when you walk in and you get the sense they're like, oh great, here they come again. And yet because of our Christian conviction, we have a different view. We're not viewing people as problems to be solved but as people to be loved. How is this countercultural? It's countercultural in, in terms of the reason, the why we love the vulnerable. We don't love out of guilt. We don't love out of obligation. We love out of gratitude and out of grace, right? The gratitude. We were slaves. We are spiritually poor. We are absolutely in need of some intervening help from somewhere else. We don't have it within us. And when we realize that, that God was kind to us when we were at our most vulnerable, we go, okay, then I can do that for other people. We are motivated out of grace. We realize everything I have is a gift. I don't own anything. I'm a steward of what God has given me. It's a gift. It's not deserved. It's not earned. And so I'm open-handed with it. Totally different motivation. How's it counterculture? What's counterculture? How we engage as the people of God, right? We engage with eagerness and with generosity. Not a kind of stingy, If I have some left over as I build out my life of materialism and consumption, then maybe I'll help the poor. That's not how Christians are. We tithe right off the gate. We give right off the bat. That's how we do it. We engage with a desire for relationship, not just drive by compassion, but actually a desire to know people. I think that's one of the most interesting things is that when you actually realize like, wow, we're made in the image of God, so many uh, vulnerable people also are brothers and sisters in Christ. And if that's true, then, then we're one body. We need each other. And so we engage with a desire for relationship. We engage with humility. Here's the thing. If, if we just think, well, I'm here to meet the needs, that's not humble. But if we realize I'm part of this body, I'm part of this larger thing, and I actually, they need something that I have and I need something they have. Here's an amazing quote by John Del Husay. He's a seminary professor and actually an elder at Redemption Alhambra. He says this, in the early church, the wealthy and poor created a symbiotic relationship. The wealthy provided the latter with basic needs, while the poor, who were especially close to God because of their complete dependence, would pray on behalf of the wealthy. So he he actually describes that that there were wealthy people who who said, you know what, my role in the body of Christ, my role in the kingdom of God is to help provide for the financial needs of vulnerable people. But when I bring them the money, when I bring them the gift, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, hey, I'm giving you this, but would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Not because you're loved more by God, you're not. Not because you're inherently closer to God as if just you know, poverty was a virtue, no. But by the fact that, you, that you're often much more dependent than I am, I solve my problems with money and connections and resources and you just, all you have is God. Will you pray for me? One of our pastors at Redemption Tucson, Marcus Doe, uh, was born and raised in West Liberia, Africa. Um, his father was actually like the head of the secret service and then a coup came in. And he went from having a driver who took him to school to being in a refugee camp within like a year. And he looked at that quartet of the vulnerable. He said, well, I haven't been a widow, but I've been an orphan. I've been a sojourner, and I've been poor. When the coup came, they beheaded his father. And what he said was, he said, now here I am, and I'm in America, and I'm so... (laughs) You want to talk about thankful for America. He's thankful for America. But he goes, I don't pray like I used to. Because there's something about when you're in desperation. And so that's an, I just think that's so interesting. The wealthy can provide money and the poor can provide the prayer. And we all need to help each other in all those ways, but I just think that's really interesting. So what might God be inviting us to as Redemption Church Gateway in light of this heart that God has for the poor? And so first, I just want to celebrate when I think about, I was thinking about this quartet of the vulnerable and I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is so cool that when you think about the quartet of the vulnerable, Redemption Gateway is involved in all four. Right There's this amazing group of widows that just sort of started organically and now, um, sadly, because of their situation, there's dozens. But wonderfully, there's dozens. And they call themselves the Silver Bells. And they get together and they care for one another and they love one another. And we have men in our church who help provide uh, needs and fix-it stuff and different things to come alongside them. I was thinking about orphans. Every month here we have a support group. For our foster care, kinship, and adoption ministry, there's lots of uh, investment that's happening. This Christmas, as part of our Christmas offering, we'll give to foster care, kinship, and adoption because that's something that really matters to the heart of God. I was thinking about sojourners. A number of you in our church as different opportunities have arisen over the years, have hosted refugees in your home, people who've come and you didn't know their language and they didn't know yours, but you loved them and you fed them and you took care of them. A number of years ago for our Christmas offering, we gave a a significant gift to Immigrant Hope, which is a, a ministry that helps provide legal services for people that are trying to pursue a legal pathway to be here in our country. I thought about the poor. Every month, there's a M25 collection that's happening. Uh, there's a right now a full benevolence account. We're like trying to give more money away because people have been so generous in terms of giving to our benevolence. I think about our multi-times a year, we go to Juarez, to the outskirts of Juarez in a neighborhood called the Colonias, and we help build houses, and we open medical clinics, and we uh, serve and love and build relationships with the poor. And so I was thinking about this going like, wow, this is, this is awesome. Like, praise God that as a church, we're not like going, oh, No. the Bible says these four people oh man we got nothing but I think about other things we have partnerships with Hope Women's Center that provide relationships and support and coaching and mentoring and supplies and all sorts of things for vulnerable women and their kids a number of you were here a month or so ago when the Vineyard Pregnancy Center, the Mobile Pregnancy Center, uh, came through. And that's one of our partners, the Vineyard Pregnancy Center, to help uh, give uh, mothers the opportunity to hear their baby's heartbeat in the hope that they will save and protect and allow to live their unborn children. Not just that, but also coming alongside them and supporting and encouraging them. There's Compassion Connect, another of our ministry partners, that provides health care clinics that uh, happen across the year There's just lots of different things. And so I just, I want to start this going like, praise God. We are, as Redemption Gateway, continuing the legacy that has been handed to us since the early church. And we're involved, and that is worth celebrating. And you can clap for that, Summer. And that is wonderful. Praise God. So that's the first thing. What might God be inviting us into? Maybe he's inviting us to celebrate and just, just for you to even know, hey, there's a lot going on. You may not know about it, you may not hear about it, now you heard about it. There's ways to get involved. The second thing that God might be inviting us into is making our needs known. Here's what I wanna tell you. God unashamedly identifies himself with the vulnerable, which means if you are in a place where for whatever reason you're vulnerable, God is not ashamed of you. And you don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to be ashamed to say, hey, I need some help. Hey, I'm not sure what to do. Hey, could I talk to somebody? Hey, I have this need. We, we, we have resources. And there's processes you have to go through. I mean, we're not just like, this is an Oprah, where you just like reach under your chair and there's cash, right? We're not doing that. But but here's the thing, if you're in need, if you're vulnerable, if you have some things that are going on and you need help, God is not embarrassed about you, and we're not either. We're a family. We're not ashamed of you. And you have gifts that other people need, and other people have gifts that you need. And so we need to be a community. We need to be a church family where we are not ashamed and embarrassed to make our needs known. That might be something God's inviting you to. And then finally, I wonder this, is there a way for us to pursue more proximity and more relationships as we serve and care for the vulnerable? Because other than the opportunities that I've had to, uh, as I look at my list, that I've had to go to Juarez and I've had to host refugees in our home, all that other stuff that's going on, I'm, I'm glad it's going on. I'm giving money to support it. But I don't have any proximity to it. And it's very easy for me, like it probably is for many of you, to feel pretty insulated relationally from the vulnerable, from the poor, from the overlooked. And so I just wonder, what, what if we began to pray, God, would you give me the gift of more relationship with people who are vulnerable? Not so I can be the hero that meets their need, but so that I could have real relationship. There might be ways to do this through partnerships, right? All of the partners that I just mentioned, Uh, They all need mentors. They all need advocates. They all need uh, volunteers. Um, We've included them actually this last year at our volunteer fair. They were here for it. And if you will email me, LukeSimmons at RedemptionAZ.com, email me and I'll connect you with Mark Burns. And Mark will help you get involved in these partnerships where you could actually begin to serve and make a difference and build relationships with some of these folks. Another one would be doing foster care or supporting people who are doing foster care, right? Like people who are doing foster care, there's needs for babysitting. There's needs for respite care. There's various levels of things that are needed to be required to do that, but that might be a way to come alongside people. Actually, October 28th, uh, we're doing a, a, an event called Finding Your Place in Foster Care Care it's an orientation. It's a place for you to go, you know what? Maybe I'm not in a position or a season of life where I'm gonna become a foster parent, but here's some ways that I could come alongside those who are. Here's some ways I could come alongside people who've adopted. Here's some ways I could come alongside these families. Again, email me, lukesimmons at redemptionaz.com. I'll connect you with Darcy Wilcoxon, who leads that ministry. There's lots of opportunities. There's lots of ways to pursue proximity and to pursue relationship. And as we close, I just, I just wanna say this. We are not saved by our love for the vulnerable. This is not a, right, there is a kind of gospel that's a false gospel that says if you do a good job of loving a certain kind of person the right way, then you can feel good about yourself. That's not what we believe. We believe we're saved by sheer and total grace. We believe that we are poor in spirit. We believe that we are absolutely in need of forgiveness, of reconciliation with God, of healing a broken life of sin. We need that absolutely. And what we find in the gospel is that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, while we were still poor, it was at that very moment God moved forward to love us. And so get this, we don't engage with the vulnerable out of ought to, we don't engage with the vulnerable out of, well, I guess I got to earn my place. No, we've been loved by sheer grace. And so we love by sheer grace. We're not going to sit there and try to evaluate everyone and go, are you deserving of my love? Aren't you glad God didn't ask that question about you? But we're going to love freely. We're going to love the least, the lost, the last. Because God does. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for all the different places that it tells us, your heart. And uh, God, in the ways that we've just not noticed this before, I pray you would help uh, alert us to it. God, thank you that you uh, pursue us. And God, thank you for the generosity that you've put in the heart of this church. God, this is a message that uh, doesn't feel like a confrontation, but like an encouragement. And so I pray you'd encourage us, that you'd give us your heart of compassion, your eyes to see, and we thank you for your abundant grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.